so exciting. We've got great things coming up. Yeah, we have a new partnership with justiceinfo.net. Yeah, they're a great independent website covering news on justice, like us, uh, tribunals, truth commissions, all of that stuff to do with transitional justice. And of course, we work for them and we write for them for a long time, both so we're supposed to say they're wonderful, but they actually are great. And it's also our go-to website when we want to know about obscure truth commissions in Tunisia that we haven't had the time to catch up. That's what we read. And they're in French as well as in English. Yeah, and they're going to put uh, some of our podcasts on their website. So we're hopefully going to welcome a lot more new listeners. Hi, welcome. So let's get going. On we go. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments, false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Welcome to our three amazing guests for whom this is a really big week. It's ASP time. Hi, we have Liz Evanson from Human Rights Watch. Hello. We have Amal Nasser from FIDH. Hi. And we have Alex Villemain-Grendel from the Women's Initiative for Gender Justice. Hi. So this week is the Assembly of States Parties of the International Criminal Court. 122 ta- states, is okay. that right? Um, they discuss budget, work program for the next year. Yeah, it's kind of like the um, Comic-Con for the international justice world, but without the costumes, unfortunately. Yes. And it's a, week, <laughs> it's a week where uh, the states come together to oversee how the court is run, to map out procedures and hash out the annual budget and get ready for court elections. Um, so Amal, looking at this week ahead, where do you think the focus of the states' parties will be? There are a number of interesting areas that states will focus on. You've mentioned already uh, some. But as every year, the budget discussions is uh, a key issue discussed for 2020. And then another important discussion that will take place is how to strengthen the ICC in a process that is now known as the ICC review. Um, This is going to take all the time and discussion and energy of everyone. And certainly for us, we're extremely invested in this process and and are looking forward to the discussions and to making the best uh, out of this uh, out of this week. What about this review? What what is it? Who is it? Where is it? Oh, that's a that's a long story. Let's try to make it (laughs) as short as possible. Uh, This review is basically an exercise uh, in which uh, at least we hope is going to aim at strengthening the performance of the ICC and the Rome Statute system as a whole. I emphasize the Rome Statute system as a whole because the ICC's functioning depends also on external factors, just as it depends on its internal factors as well. So there's a lot to improve on both sides. Um, What's going to happen this week is uh, there will be a resolution. Uh, If adopted, it will launch this process, which is known as an ICC review. It will appoint independent experts that will assess a number of areas that affect the performance of the International Criminal Court. And when we're talking about independent experts, I've heard some people gripe about how independent this is. So Liz, where are the kind of pitfalls of establishing this independent expert um, review commission? I think that's a really good question and a really good point. I mean, we, like Amal, have also looked to the idea of having independent experts come in and really help the court, first and foremost, to understand what are some of the challenges it's facing, what are some of the solutions to those challenges, and also states, where can they contribute more? But for it to be effective, it has to have independence. It has to be experts. So the people who are appointed to this group, states have to allow them to get on with their work, and the court has to allow them to get on with their work. 
work. So I think this week we're still waiting to see how will this come together? Who will the experts be? What mandate will they be given? And again, are they really going to be um, equipped and let to do let to do the job that that we want them to do, which is to focus on how to strengthen the court? But I remember other reviews of the ICC. There's a Swiss one that I remember reporting on. I mean, what makes this different? I think what could make this different, um, and all of that work I think is highly relevant. So there has been uh, NGO monitoring and reporting on the court. There was an initiative to develop what ultimately became something called performance indicators. So it's not the first time that there's been a sense of trying to look at what's working, what's not working, and how to make it better. But I think what could make this different is that it would be really um, something that's being done with full support from the court, from states' parties, and from stakeholders. Um, and the idea really came forward from former Assembly of States parties presidents. Then the court itself called for this review. And I think if there can be a sense of really a coming together and developing an objective framework, a reference point around which then everyone can look at these recommendations, it'll be up to the court to decide whether and how to implement them. But I think that could be different than from some of the processes that we've seen in the past, which have been a bit more from one side here or people piecemeal. And I should also just say, this is something that's been done before. So the ad hoc tribunals had this kind of an assessment. The special court for Sierra Leone had this kind of assessment. Um, So we know that it's been helpful in the past. And so this is also the ASP where we're going to see a lot of jockeying for the position of the new prosecutor. And now there has been criticism that the list of candidates who applied so far that was um, published did not feature many women. Alex, why is this important for the court to have this or to have a woman prosecutor or to have all these women on the list? Well, it is crucially important to have good gender balance um, in anything, in any process and any initiative that has to do with basically anything in life um, to make sure that the ICC has uh, that legitimacy. It is also very important that um, the outreach to um, female candidates um, is being done and we're not seeing that uh, really materialize because indeed at the moment the number of candidates um, that are male uh, by far outweigh the number of female candidates for the prosecutor uh, election position. Do you also as NGOs push people to apply? How does that work or do you kind of wait for uh, the pool to kind of thin out and see who's bobbing up and then get behind one candidate or are you actively calling people, you know, Miss uh, Prosecutor over here, why don't you apply? This would be a fabulous job for you. Yes, some some NGOs definitely do. I mean, as you know, we all work uh, with a large pool of of NGO um, colleagues from around the world. Some NGOs do indeed reach out to specific candidates. Some NGOs also reach out to, um, as we do to governments, to encourage them to reach out to people who may be very well qualified for these positions. Um, And so that is how we try to get to um, get good female candidates to apply for the position? I think some of the uh, key challenge around the election of the prosecutor is that sometimes there's a misunderstanding around the process. I think uh, people around the world and potentially good candidates don't know that they can just apply themselves. Uh, They probably think that they need to be nominated by a government, uh, by the Minister of Foreign Affairs or so on. When it's just an open vacancy, I can and they can just put their name out there. Of course, I mean, we can't be naive. We already know that there's the element of campaigning and and political support and so on, which also might prevent some candidates from submitting their application Mm -hmm. if they feel like 
they're not going to be backed by their own governments uh, or or by anyone let's say um so i think maybe it's just also the process might be unclear to some and i think some civil society organizations have indeed been engaged and encouraging people to apply it's a vacancy just apply put your name out there Mm -hmm. but that that might be a bit of a more complicated exercise than we think it is and I think that that point that you made is really important. One thing that we want to hear from states at this meeting is a clear commitment that this is going to be a merit-based process, that that is the most important uh, uh, factor, None of not the campaigning, not the politicking, but this is really about finding the best person for this job next year. And I think if that message goes out from states' parties, it can also encourage uh, people to come forward and understand that it really is an, an open process. And talking about merit-based appointments, we've also looking ahead to judges being appointed in uh, next year. Um, and there's a lot of discussion about why that is really based on politicking and vote trading, because it's um, it's done as you know something like a UN process where I get a judge, you get one of these. How can you make that change? I hope that states parties are starting to get the message that they can't treat the judicial elections at the ICC just like any other position in an international organization, that this court needs the highest quality individuals who have experience dealing with criminal proceedings. And actually, I think this is one area where this week we might see some progress, we might see some changes. Amal mentioned a resolution on the review process. There's also a resolution to do a number of things that could improve the nomination and election procedure for judges, including, I think, of particular importance. It's uh, It could strengthen the mandate of a body that the Assembly has, which is a committee that helps it to assess those who have been nominated. Um, and we are certainly hoping that states' parties will take the opportunity to strengthen the mandate of that group and make sure that that assessment is really rigorous and really actually helps states' parties to evaluate between different candidates. I think what's, what's also important is uh, to ensure a high moral character for any person who will be elected, whether as prosecutor or as judge. And that includes an impeccable record of, um, I'm just going to say it as it it is, uh, no hashtag MeToo allegations um, and and nothing in terms of uh, staff bullying and so on. These are also important criteria. Looking Um, out for staff welfare. So important. All the soft skills that managers these days are expected to have. It is one of the requirements in the Rome Statute that any candidate that puts himself or herself forward for the position of the prosecutor, but also for the position of the judges, have high moral character. So is it important that we get some women judges elected? Yes, it is crucially important that we have some women judges elected because women judges will bring a necessarily a different perspective because they're women, Um, also because the ICC is um, still very much a leader in uh, international criminal justice in the sense that many other um, institutions still look at the ICC, how is it organized as an institution, but also how is its justice, how how is jurisprudence, etc. delivered. That means that it has a very important um, function as serving as an example, Um, and therefore even more so, um, it is important that the bench, um, so there are 18 ICC judges, that at least half is um, occupied by women. And the leaving judges next year, uh, the the six judges who will leave, I believe uh, a big number of those six judges leaving are women, right? 
Yeah, it feels like it's just getting lower and lower, the number of women, and we've got an all-male presidency at the moment. So, um, yeah. We do. We do have an all-male presidency. Um, most of the judges are at the moment men. Um, the registrar is a man. Um, the if, if we're looking at the number of candidates for the um, prosecutor election, most are men as well. So the chances are quite big that the next prosecutor will be a man. So are we going ahead uh, with regards to gender justice and equality, or I'm afraid that we may go backward. And for the first 15 years of this court, you had to deal mostly with internal issues and trouble with non-cooperation of member states. But now, uh, with the Trump White House, the United States have moved from kind of passively non-cooperating to actively hampering the court by putting travel restrictions on ICC officials. How likely is that to impact the court um, procedures in the sense of also uh, electing a prosecutor and judges who wants to be an ICC prosecutor if, I don't know, if you can't go on vacation to Florida anymore? Oh, that's that's a very good question, and I think it will also come up. In, uh, it should come up actually in in this year's assembly because, of course, every year states uh, discuss cooperation and uncooperation and as part of the ASP agenda. So basically, if states come forward in this assembly and make a commitment to defend the court's prosecutor, uh, the court's judiciary, and push against these threats, and they're not only threats at this mm -hmm. point, they're also measures in place to impede with the court's work, that also signals a m message to people interesting in the in these positions of prosecutor and judges that actually they can do their work and they will be backed by states and by the assembly of states parties um, should additional threats and sanctions arise like the U.S. announced already. It's really a moment for all of those states to come together and to project in what they say and what they do a clear message that they want this court. They want this court to be able to do what it was set up to do, to serve as a court of last resort, that they will have its back, that they will provide the cooperation, they will provide the resources. And that's a really... It, you know, you can dismiss that as just talking or just statements, but I think it is really a part of building up and maintaining the political consensus for this court to have the space to follow its mandate independently. But we kind of say that every year, or at least the NGOs say that every year, and I've been to a lot of these ASPs, and then, yes, we all want this strong commitment. Um, a couple of years ago, it was all the African states withdrawing, and then we also wanted this. And it ends up just being a lot of wrangling about the budget in the end. So, Alex, how do you see that? You were before the Women's Initiative for Gender Justice, you were with the Coalition uh, for the International Criminal Court. So, do you think this ASP will be different? Or are we going to see a lot of the same stuff? Well, you see, well, this is indeed going to be my 10th ASP, so I'm not sure if I'm... <laughs> <laughs> what I'm doing at this stage in my life. But uh, indeed, um, I, I recognize what you're saying. There is, is maybe a, a sense of frustration um, when you follow these discussions very closely because it does take a lot of time, it does take a lot of energy and capacity to negotiate not only the budget, but other negotiations around resolution language. And when you add up all the amount of hours and the amount of people that are um, involved in that and the results that come from that, there is that sense of frustration because what does it amount to? But this is the nature of multilateral diplomacy um, and the nature of how these negotiations and how these processes must go. Um, and so I do think that this year, well, this year, what a good thing about the ASP, that's it. It's going to be a little bit shorter than the ASPs before. Um, so I'm not quite sure if that's going to be very beneficial to all of us because uh, I do foresee a couple of very, very, very late uh, evenings. Um, 
but um, do you um, think that states are forced to confront certain issues in a way that they weren't before, certainly with in relation to cooperation and, and threats against the court's work and so on? Well, they, they may be. I'm not quite certain that they are um, faced with that. Uh, that's certainly what we as NGOs try to make come across, that because of the nature of, indeed, the threats to not only the ICC, international justice, but these um, instances of multilateralism um, that is under threat, that has been under threat for a number of years now, that that is a serious threat as well to the project, if I may call it so, such, um, of international justice. Um, and that that is something that I hope states will feel. Um, and we do see that from a number of states that are very um, proactive, very supportive um, of the ICC, that they are taking a stand much more strongly than they did a number of years ago. You're all, you know, highly expert and you spend a lot of your time looking at the ICC, lobbying the ICC. You know the stuff technically perfectly. But aren't there a lot of NGOs who come as well to this meeting and they just look at it and say, what the hell is going on here? How on earth can we make people understand uh, the people who are in this room understand that, that we're all about justice and this, is not, this feels like nothing to do with justice? Do you feel that each time? Absolutely. Because it, it tends to be such an institutional discussion. It's it's essentially the budget, cooperation and so on. And they they don't feel like the the situations in particular, each and every situation or case that there, that is important to the participants is being uh, discussed or given enough attention. And that's why you see all these side events that tend to shed light on that. We want to talk about the situations. We want to show what victims and affected communities are going through because maybe without this side event, you would feel that these issues are largely forgotten because it's such a, a huge uh, assembly of states discussing mm -hmm. the running of the court, which is important, but it's not always accessible to the to the groups attending. This is also very important when it comes to the ICC review exercise. Um, beyond the people, uh, the NGOs in The Hague and in New York, uh, we did feel that grassroots organizations coming from situation countries don't really understand the exercise yet and don't really understand what's on the table for this assembly. And this has been so important for us. Don't understand the independent review exercise. The independent expert review. They don't know what it's about. They don't know what it will look like. They don't know how to engage with it. So in addition to it, uh, Liz mentioned, in addition to it being so, uh, so uh, the independence of this ex exercise being so important to it uh, succeeding, uh, I would also add clarity and transparency, uh, not just for, all, for us here in The Hague and in New York, but also for the people in situation countries. Mm -hmm. But doesn't this get to the heart of this, this question of... Um, from the outside, the ICC looks like it belongs to the prosecutor. But from the inside, it feels like, in fact, going to this meeting, it belongs to the states. And for you as NGOs, I mean, you feel it belongs to you, don't you? Well, I think it's, a, it's really a shared responsibility and in that sense, a shared ownership. And I think that there's a lot of work that goes on. Uh, we are all work as part of the coalition for the ICC. There's a lot of work that goes on in trying to um, provide more transparency to what happens in this meeting and to help organizations that, of course, are not going to be following every uh, crossing the T and dotting of the I of the language that's negotiated, but nonetheless feel a tremendous stake in the success of this court because what it can offer in terms of an avenue for, for justice. So there's a lot of work that goes on trying to 
provide more information. But ultimately, I think it's also our presence, our collective presence at the Assembly of States parties, which is meant to really bring states back to why was this created? What are the expectations? Why do we need this court? And to serve uh, perhaps as a bit of a conscience for states as they go about their negotiations, that this isn't just an exercise in an auditorium in The Hague over the next six days, and neither is it just a performance in a courtroom in The Hague. It really has to mean something. It really has to matter. And that doesn't doesn't mean that there isn't also a lot of uh, criticism and a lot of disappointment with what the court has actually delivered. I think what's clear is there isn't a backing away from what it should be doing. There isn't a backing away on the part of civil society from the importance we attach to it being an effective court. Um, and we don't want to see a backing away from states' parties. Um, and that's the we're trying to hold their feet to that to that fire and to that commitment. But do you see that? Because I see from the court, um, do, do you see a real connection of the NGOs with the court and the state parties? Because at the ASP with all the side events, sometimes the court officials do show up for, for your side events. But there also is a feeling of the court where they're like, um, if you don't understand, we haven't explained it well enough. So let's try some more outreach and kind of treat NGOs like those pesky little NGOs. You said it, the conscious sometimes feel like you're the Jiminy Cricket in the court and the state parties are just like, we're just trying to do this. And these people are not understanding and we just have to explain it better. Um, Who's Pinocchio? <laughs> I, th I know I think that's a real problem and, and I, I'm sure I'm on Alix will have things to say as well. I think we do have to continue to fight for this space. I mean, Alix is right that we've had a relatively unique openness with the assembly, the fact that NGOs are there, the fact that they can observe sessions. But that space has closed states parties. I think it's been become more and more difficult. I think it, it's just honest to say it's been more and more difficult to have an impact, for example, on the budget negotiations um, that really ends up feeling like it's a discussion between states parties and it's very hard um, for us to get in there and to have an impact and to call attention to what the resource needs of the court are, including to have a, a greater impact with affected communities. So it's not that uh, we can take that space for granted. You know, we really have to fight for it and work together to fight for it. But I think engagement is still there. I think it's uh, it still happens uh, with court officials and with states parties. And I think um, in a number of areas, including some on the agenda for this year, uh, civil society engagement has actually uh, tremendously shaped the discussion and managed to achieve some um, certain guarantees for processes that, that, that take our concerns into account fully. So I think it really depends on the topic. But for instance, in the area of the ICC review, in the area of judicial nominations and election, given the resolutions that have, are now on the table, that's a lot of uh, work from NGOs as well. And we did put our concerns, we submitted language, we submitted feedback and so on. Not all of it was taken on board, but some of it was. So uh, we, we take our wins, we'll, we'll deal with the losses. <laughs> so what, what are some of the issues that are now falling off the radar? Um, I mean, because everybody seems to be saying we're going to be talking about the independent expert review and judges and prosecutor. Is, I mean, is that it? Or is there some stuff that's fallen off the agenda? Anybody? <laughs> well, I think, uh, I hope it doesn't fall off the agenda. Um, so it might not fall off, uh, ultimately. But I think um, the key thing that we try to safeguard and promote is the centrality of victims and affected communities throughout the discussions. Why are we discussing strengthening the ICC? Why do we need good judges? Why do we need uh, a powerful, competent prosecutor? Why does all of that matter? Why do we need budgets um, to, to carry out investigations and, and prosecutions? 
ultimately it all comes down to delivering justice and a meaningful uh, criminal process to victims and affected communities. It's it's really about that. It's not just numbers and uh, numbers of investigations or how many convictions the court has achieved and, and how many acquittals uh, are we disappointed with, but it's really about the feeling of, of victims and affected communities. How, how do they look at the ICC? And I think um, for me, uh, for us in FIDH, uh, we really hope that the ICC review uh, can achieve uh, renewed confidence and trust and um, engagement from victims and affected communities and grassroots organizations with, with the court. And maybe if I may add to that as well, um, sometimes I feel that we as NGOs are seen indeed to be banging on doors, to be like have these ideals that are not attainable, that we're not too idealistic, etc. But to take what Amal just said, this is actually a centrality of the Rome Statute system, meaning that it is part of the Rome Statute laws. Uh, there is victims participation, uh, there is victim reparation, um, there are um, provisions for victim outreach, etc. It is not something that we as NGOs feel that is important or that accountability should necessarily encompass. We do so, but there is a real legal and binding obligation of this institution and then therefore as well of the Assembly of States parties to make sure that actually the justice delivered by the ICC should be meaningful and should encompass all victims and affected communities. Now, usually we have our asymmetrical haircuts questions that we ask at the end, but we're going to slightly change it up for the ASP. And so our question is now, we've talked a bit about the side events. What side event would you most like to see at the ISP? And you can't name one of your own organization. <laughs> so <laughs> which, which one are you oh going to? Gosh. What are you going to be going to? Where will we see you? Wow. Uh, well, the side events are honestly usually the best part. And actually, I think that's another function that this meeting serves. It really is a coming together to talk about justice um, in many different spaces, not just about the ICC. Um, I am really looking forward to, this is a kind of a nerdy answer, but I'm really looking forward to an event on Tuesday evening, uh, which is about the election of judges, because Open Society Justice Initiative has published really a blockbuster report, as far as I'm concerned, looking at uh, the nomination practices and what needs to be better and different to get better um, uh, better state buy-in uh, for, for having the most highly qualified uh, individuals elected. And so I think that's going to be a really interesting discussion. That's on Tuesday night. Yeah, that's so raising the bar. Raising uh, the bar is yeah. the report. I just see Alex has very craftily got out the list <laughs> to make sure that she knows which one that she's going to do. What are you going to going for? So um, caught up in the organization of our own side events that I haven't really had the chance to really look at the rest of the agenda. And now she and Amal are flipping <laughs> through. So I very much look forward to all side events organized by FDH <laughs> and Human Rights Watch, thank especially you, the you. one <laughs> organized. Um, <laughs> I very much look forward to the side event co-hosted by FDH and um, Human Rights Watch that is going to look at how to um, get voices of the survivor communities, voices of uh, affected communities, voices of NGOs that are not here in The Hague or in New York following the ICC review so closely and how to make sure that those voices are heard in those processes as well. And now, Amal, you've rifled through the list. <laughs> the thing is that the side event, I mean, I feel like it's a bad sign that it's not on the ICC by uh, the Syria mechanism and the Myanmar mechanism. 
Um, these are mechanisms for the collection of evidence and, and consolidation of evidence for prosecution uh, of crimes. It's the triple I M and, and the, the double, double I, double, I, double M. M. Indeed. Yay. Yes. <laughs> well done. <laughs> those. those. Uh, I was just going through the agenda to see when it is, and I can't remember, but I think it's on the 6th. The reason why I'm really looking forward to it is because it's, it's going to address uh, the interaction between these two mechanisms and civil society. And that's something that's very dear to my heart. I really uh, prioritize that. It's something we push for at the ICC, and I'm really looking forward to see how the mechanisms are going to deal with civil society and and the work of civil society. Oh, that's a really good recommendation. I'm really interested in that, and I didn't know it was taking place, so that's where I'm going to geek out about collecting evidence and how these mechanisms do all that stuff. Um, the couple, well, one that I spotted was one on... Um, enabling those who are in the detention unit to get visits from their families, which mm -hmm. is incredibly important and nobody ever talks about. And the other one, I'm chairing an event and I'm going to say my own <laughs> event. I'm chairing an event for the first time and it's about Afghanistan and it's on uh, Wednesday, lunchtime. And we know you're all very busy, so we're going to round it off with our last uh and true asymmetrical haircuts question is, um, what are you reading or watching that you should recommend? And let's start with Amal. I'm reading a book uh, called The Impossible Revolution. Uh, it's by a um, Syrian activist, and he's, I think, largely referred to as the, one of the most important Syrian scholars um, talking about the Syrian revolution. I really, really recommend it. It's a collection of articles that he's written uh, from Syria when he was living in hiding. Um, uh, or from Turkey, where he now lives. His wife is uh, uh, is currently missing. She has been abducted by Jaysh uh, al-Islam, um, I believe, in, in Douma. And she continues to be unaccounted for, along with three other people. So I, I feel it's such an important perspective uh, to, to, listen, uh, to listen to and to read and to, to go through. So um, yes, Syria is, uh, is something that you don't hear enough uh, around the ICC and the assembly. And uh, maybe... I'll recommend that. And Alex? I am writing down three already. Uh, there's so much good to read. I'm reading at the moment uh, The Water Dancer by Tanehishi Coates. I hope I pronounced his name correctly. I can very strongly recommend it. Um, I'm not even halfway through, so, you know, but I think it's going to uh, remain absolutely excellent. Um, it is about slavery in the U.S., um, then I think a book that is important to read, actually important to read for absolutely everyone, is The Power by Naomi Elderman. I know Akila already suggested it when she did her podcast, but still I want to mention it because it is actually important because it really goes to the basis of difference between sexes and therefore um, the basis of why there's such a difference of gender now. Um, so highly recommended. And for a bit more fun, um, City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert. Um, she is uh, quite a famous um, novelist. Um, it's a bit more lighthearted, but it's a lot of fun because it talks about New York. It talks about women. It talks about female sexuality um, and a good read as well for after a heavy ASP days. I've been eyeing that up in the, in the, in the bookstore. But now, Liz, what, what do you do for winding down all of the mass atrocities and uh, I watch a lot of the uh, the best of British uh, baking or the, the great British bake-off it's called something <laughs> it's called something different in the US and maybe also um, I recently watched a film called the biggest little farm 
which is about a couple in uh, California that buys a plot of, well, not just a plot, a huge number of acres of land that's really been run into the ground by growing just a single crop. And over 10 years, uh, using traditional farming methods, they really rehabilitate the soil and create this amazingly beautiful paradise. And a big message of the film is that if you if you let nature do its work, it will bring things back into balance. And that's something that I'm also trying to bring into my work and into my into my life as well, trying to keep that message and maybe thinking ahead to the next really busy um, period. That seems particularly important. I could also really recommend cat and puppy videos. I think they're really, <laughs> really helpful. Yes. Yeah, are. I was Many. watching Sesame Street this morning. Yeah, you have to have something. It works. Do it and Ernie are friends. So, what a feast. Uh, that was our show for today. That was uh, Asymmetrical Haircuts. And during the ASP, we're going to record a few uh, shorter special justice updates to keep you in the loop. And look for us in the hallways um, if you want an asymmetrical haircut sticker. So we'll be handing them out to our fans. <laughs> I'm laughing that we actually have fans. But <laughs> oh, you definitely you have fans. <laughs> yes, you do. Um, so we're going to be roaming the halls with microphones and stickers. So come and, come and find us during the ASP. Thanks very much. Thank Thanks you. For having us. Thanks for having us. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe give us a rating and spread the word.